Let's uh, flip over to Romans chapter 15. We're going to keep going through our study in Romans. Happy Mother's Day to all you mothers. We appreciate being born. All right. So Romans chapter 15, just a little review as we jump into it. Uh, Remember that uh, 1 through 8 is... Uh, The chapters, I should say, 1 through 8, have been uh, essentially that a person is saved by grace through faith, right? Not of works, lest any man should boast. That the whole uh, first eight chapters show us how man has fallen uh, morally and has a fallen nature uh, through uh, the lineage of Adam. That God loves human beings. He loved them at creation. He loves them now. And at the right time, he sent the Lord Jesus Christ as a... A substitutionary death, one might say. Uh, Previous to Jesus' arrival, you had um, 1,000, 1,500 years of animal sacrifice in Judaism. And we're told that that uh, blood that was shed by animals, uh, as men shed the blood of animals, that that smeared over sin, that it blotted sin. We're told in Hebrews that it never forgave sin. It could not forgive sin because it was the blood of bulls and goats. And so it, it covered it by faith. When Christ came, he was what all those sacrifices pointed to. So when Christ's blood was shed, his blood didn't just cover sin or blot it out, as it says. His blood forgave sin and removed sin. And that's what uh, uh, 4 and 5 are all about. The fact that through Jesus Christ, that sin or moral wrong, who we are by nature, is forgiven by God through Christ. So at the cross, we see the love of God in that he cares for humans. It's one, the greatest example of God's love. We see God's justice in that Christ, it says, he bore our sin, that he himself became sin so that we, uh, that, that we might become the righteousness of God is what the scripture tells us. So in some way, God uh, attached our sin to Christ there at the cross. So for the person who cries out to God for forgiveness, realizes their, their nature, who they are, acknowledges that, and, and simply asks for that forgiveness, God says it's a free gift. He calls it salvation. And then we have a free gift through him, he, he, that he rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, he also sent the Holy Spirit to the church. And the Holy Spirit is uh, now in some way bonded with our soul. He is attached to us and uh, not that we become divinity. We're not saying that, but we now have this, uh, the, or I should say the Spirit of God working in our hearts, actually supernaturally empowering us to make decisions, to take thoughts captive, to, to uh, listen to God, obey God in ways that he's called us to do that. So you have this miraculous reality that Paul is talking all about in 1 through 8. In 9 through 11, he, he's going and expanding. Paul expands on a thought that he, he begins in chapter 8, which is that God works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And so Paul is making the point that if to the believer God is so mighty, he doesn't say that, he, that, that all things are good, all things are not good. But he does say that, that anything that occurs in the life of a believer, anything that occurs even globally, that God is able to uh, affect that action or event to actually do good in the life of a believer, to promote and bring us closer to him. Does that make sense? And so because he's that mighty, then a believer may ask and say, well, what about Israel? 
Why, why is it that Israel is now dispersed, right? 70 AD, which would be about 23 years after Paul writes to the Romans that Israel is going to be destroyed uh, as a nation. Uh, the, the temple will be destroyed. The people will be scattered. Rome's going to come in uh, like a wrecking ball, as it were, and, and absolutely decimate uh, the, the Jews. So that one might say, well, if God is saying that he's all-powerful and can work in my life, what about the Jews? Did he just forsake them? Did he just, well, they, they went too far and now they're done? And he says, no. And, and, he, and he makes a, Paul in, in 9 and 10, he's making this point. Look, that God chose certain people, not for salvation, but for ministry. They're what they did. He uses Pharaoh. He uses Abraham these, and Moses, these examples of people. And he says that God's sovereignty chose them for ministry. This is not we're talking about salvation now. And that he used them in his, because he's so powerful. So you have two good examples of Abraham uh, and Moses and one kind of uh, like a, an, an evil or a bad example, which would be Pharaoh, and how God used their personal choices that they made to advance his kingdom. And because he's that mighty and that powerful that he is going to continue to do that, and he's not done with the Jews. And that the Jews will be, he will begin to work with the Jews again uh, after the church is raptured, after the church is gone, in these last seven years, where the, he begins again to work in the kingdom of the Jews. Other people, they begin to get saved. You have witnesses that are raised up, all sorts of stuff that we can read about in the book of Revelation and other places. So then in chapter 12, we get to the practical side. Uh, it's all practical in a sense, but this is where Paul says, here's how we respond. And that's, and that's usually how he writes most of his letters. Here's how we respond to God. And he starts it all off by saying in chapter 12, verse 1, that we yield our lives to God like a living sacrifice. So in all those old covenant sacrifices, they were pulled to the altar. They had ropes. The altar had horns on it. Um, we know from rabbinical history writings that animals would pull away as soon as they would smell the, the burning blood and, on, and they would see the other animals being slaughtered and, and that they would tie them to those horns on the altar. So Paul makes a, a metaphor and he says we should be living sacrifices. In other words, we should be those that step up to God's altar to offer our lives, but not to die, not as martyrs per se, although that, that could happen, but to be those that just say, I'm yours, Lord. Just as the, the free will or the burnt offering was completely uh, burnt and, and offered up to God and it was as a sweet-smelling savor. Not that God's uh, necessarily a fan of barbecue, but the fact that the idea that somebody gave to him and loved him and cared about him. And that was, that was sweet to him. He appreciated that. Not because he's needy, but because he's good and he created human beings to be with him. He loves us. It's kind of a wild idea that God loves us. He, he wants us to be with him. And so the practical side of Romans is just the working out of how we be with, in a, in a very literal sense, a spiritual literal sense, how we be with God, how we interact with Him. And the reality is, in 12 through 15, he's talking all about what he's doing on the earth now, which is building his kingdom. And so he's laying out and he's saying, if you want to be part of my kingdom, he says in the first part, here's how you get saved. Here's how forgiveness happens. In the second part, he's saying, here's how you walk with me and experience everything I have for you. And to an extent, they're mutually, they can be mutually exclusive. You can get saved, put your trust in Christ, invite him into your life, and then live for you or I live for me my whole life. I can do that. But 12 through 15 is about here's how you can actually find the life that God wants for you. And we all know what it's like to live for ourselves, right? It's, uh, usually it ends up with anxiety, 
It ends up with depression. It ends up with regret. It ends up with anger, right? Because we reject what God has for us. We read things like, make your life a living sacrifice, and we go, no, no, no. That is crazy, Ty. That's misery. Why would I want to be nice to people around me? They're mean. Why would I want to like, donate my time to people at my church? That's crazy. I'm way more important than they are, right? That's how we think, typically. So we can reject that, and if we live a life of rejecting what Paul's been telling us about how to live a life of freedom, a, a true freedom, a true liberty, true love in, in relationship with God, if we can, we can reject those things and then just come Sunday and feel good about ourselves to then continue to reject them the rest of the week, then there will be a, a fruit to that, right? And the fruit will be guilt and shame. Not that God is guilty and shaming you, but we shame and guilt ourselves when we know we're doing what God has not called us to do. So in, in, in 14, excuse me, in, in 13, in 14, he's talking about our, our relationships and how we can be part of this building his kingdom in our relationships. Individually, he's talking about liberty in chapter 14. He's, he's, he's making the point, saying, look, there are those, and he uses three examples. He uses, uh, well, two are blatant and one he just mentions. So he mentions uh, meat, eating certain meats, whether that's just meat versus vegetarianism or whether it's uh, not, not health reasons, but vegetarianism based on Greek philosophy, most likely, or if it's meat sacrificed to idols. And his other is days that we celebrate. And then the third one that he mentions briefly is drinking, that if we drink, and he's, he's, it's a reference to alcohol. And he just makes the point that if you're eating meat that's sacrificed to idols as a Christian, it's just fine, because we know as Christians that that's, that idol has no power to it. He goes on to make this a pretty, it's, it's just a radical, to me, very radical claim in 1 Corinthians 8 when he says, if you're eating your meat in an idol's temple and your brother sees you. In other words, Paul makes this assumption that you're going to go to the temple of Diana, get that meat that's cheaper, that's been sacrificed to an idol, and you'll eat it there. Where we're like, oh, what? I don't eat in Thai if there's a Buddha, right? But Paul says, hey, as a Christian, you can go to the temple and you can eat the meat. But... If you're sitting there with your French dip and your, your you know, fellow church member walks by and goes, what are you doing in the temple of Diana eating your French dip? Don't you know that's an idol? He says, then you're obligated to leave the temple. Not because your faith was weak or you did something wrong, but because the person that sees you and has that conviction, many of them are coming out of Jews, the, the, the majority in 57 AD, which is where we are here, uh, of Christians still seem to be Jews. There's a lot of them. They're coming out of Judaism. So they're going to have difficulty releasing certain convictions, just like we do, right? Sometimes the things that we grew up with, things that we think are important or whatever, that the scripture says they're not important or something like that, we have difficulty just laying that down, don't we? So he says when that happens, that we have a responsibility as someone he calls the stronger person, the person that has the conviction and understands what God said is okay to do and does it, we have a responsibility to honor the person who he says has the weaker faith and is unable to handle that. So whether it's the person who has a beer with their burger, whether it's the person who's eating meat instead of being a vegetarian, that one's a little bit different in, in the fact that later on we're told in another letter that to teach the forbidding of meat, to tell someone you should not eat meat uh, for God's sake, is, it says that, that uh, Paul says that's a teaching of demons. It's a demonic teaching to, to forbid people from eating meat. So anyway, going through all this, the whole point that he's making is if you want to be part of building God's kingdom, our goal is to live without offense, 
Now, we're not talking about the what ifs, right? Because there's always a what if. Well, what if someone doesn't like my shirt? Well, I mean, as long as it's not crude or something like that, there may be some working through that you have to do with brethren, right? Like, I'm sorry, I just like red. That's why I wore the shirt. I'm not trying to, you know, whatever. Because we can get into some weird stuff, right? I mean, we're, we're people, so we, and we have the internet. So that's a dangerous combination, you know, for the, the two of us, where we can get into all sorts of weird things. So when, when someone can come along and, uh, and, and is having difficulty, our job is not to smash them. In fact, he starts chapter 14 by saying, the, if someone has weaker faith, meaning they don't understand the freedom that they have in Christ, he says, invite them, welcome them in to your church, to your home, to your life. He says, but not to argue with them. And that's so huge. And it's such a relief, isn't it? That we have a command from the Bible that we don't have to go through our church, figure out what everybody you know, believes about every single thing, and then invite them in and change their mind. We, in fact, we're told, don't do that. It's really weird. In fact, the vibe you get from 12, 13, 14, and 15 is way less like we need to sin sniff and get things figured out and make sure that everybody's doing what they should do. And it's way more hands-off. It's way more personal. It's almost like... You know, there's, there's an interesting law, and I don't know why, maybe this is a good example, maybe it's not, but this is how it works out in my mind. So when you go through training uh, to drive an ambulance, when I, worked, when I worked for medics to ambulance, you have to go through some training, same with fire trucks and all that. And the way the law works is, if you have your lights and siren on, people have to yield to you, right? But if they don't yield to you, and you force the right-of-way and get into a wreck, it's your fault, the ambulance's fault. So you have this weird dynamic that the, even though you have the right of way, if you force the right of way, you're in the wrong. And if someone dies, you go to jail because you force the right of way. So in the same way, it's like we have, the, we have this dual uh, dynamic with Paul where he's saying you have the right to do these things. But if someone's, if someone's stumbled by that right, meaning they trip, they fall, they can't get past that, it makes it hard for them to walk with Jesus, then you lose that right and you move from being a place of love and fellowship with God to a place of preferring yourself. So really, the reason this is so hard is because the call to build God's kingdom is about what Jesus told us from the very beginning, taking up our cross daily and following him. So we have to, in a sense, we have to ask ourselves, what is the more important? What is the, the, the bigger, you know, what is the, the uh, as Jesus put it, what is the gnat and what is the camel? Do we strain at a gnat and do we swallow a camel? So how do we, how do, we do that? That's what's, what's being said here, that there's a way to live with Christ and it's to, it's to yield our lives. It's, uh, Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, I make myself a servant of all. And so in our hearts, I think for myself included, even in this very moment, you just go, no, that can't actually work. That can't really be the life that he's called me to. Has he really called me to lay aside my life? What about all the fun things I love? What about all that I like to do? What about the me time? And he's, we're, nobody's saying here, you don't get vacations anymore. You, you, you don't get to ever watch TV anymore. You know, nobody's saying that. What we're saying is what, the life that we're called to is first and foremost that Jesus gets to trump everything. No matter what I'm doing or what I like, that he gets to trump it. And sometimes, because I have brethren around me that might be weaker, or I may be weaker to them, I'm called to lay down my opinions. Not to try to get rid of them, that's impossible. But to love my brethren regardless of where they stand on my opinions. Now, can you imagine if you walk into a place, what if your work was like that? Right? What if your school was like that? What if politics were like that? 
We would live in an absolutely different world, wouldn't we? We would literally live in a utopia that way because people would just be cool. Right? They'd just be mellow. We'd just be let, live and let live the thing that, that we want. And so Paul's saying if you want to build something, you have to yield to people. You can't build something by forcing people, can you? you ever, anybody here ever been to a church that, that uses blame and shame and guilt? I grew up in one. Blame and shame and guilt are an incredible motivator, aren't they? Because we could start, we could get up here and we could start talking about how much do you pray every day? What do you give? Which, by the way, I have no idea because I never look because I don't care. But, you know, we can start talking about all the hot subjects about this stuff, right? You should do this and you should do that. And I may be able to guilt you. Jesus died on the cross for you. And you're telling me you can't spare a little time? Right? How many of those sermons do you hear? How many of those teachers do you hear? And you don't go away feeling full of life. You don't go away going, this is what I want. You go away going, I better bust my butt for Jesus or I'm going to be in a bad place. And it's a terrible motivator because that motivator ends in anger or destruction, depression. Those are the two places it ends, right? Because you come to an end and you realize, I can't do this. Or you get so angry because you feel so pressured. You better, you better, you better. What are you doing? That you just melt down. And you either rage or you just drift away, you shipwreck in your faith, right? So Paul is saying, no, 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 it's not like that. We're not using guilt, we're not using shame, we're not doing any of that. What we're saying is, if we take a step of faith towards Christ in what we're reading in these things, we will build God's kingdom and it will be more fulfilling than anything we could have ever dreamed of in this life. That's what he's saying. And to boot, we're going to get to be part of what God is doing. And so in 15, that's where Paul really lays it on. He says there in 15.1, We who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Again, I'm not trying to just rehash last week's thing, but this is how serious it is. This is how real it is. This is how rough it is, in a sense, to the flesh. We ought not to please ourselves. Why? Because we're there to bear the burdens of the weak, literally to carry to oblige, right, to be obliged, it's to have an obligation. What's an obligation? Like if, if, if you're, somebody says, hey, do you want to go get lunch? And you go, oh, you know what? I can't do it today. I have an obligation. What are you saying? I have somewhere that I'm due to go. I owe someone somewhere something, and I have to go there, whether it's an appointment or whatever it is. And so what Paul is saying is that if you are strong, now what's strong? What is strong? Strong, according to chapter 14, are people that are walking in faith. People that are walking with God, that are living in a way that they're, to the best of their ability and of their knowledge, they're honoring God, and they're walking in their convictions. That's what he means by strong. So he says, if that's who you are, if you are a strong individual, and not to say, we're not speaking in absolutes, right? I think every Christian is, obviously the scripture says, every Christian is a work in progress. Every Christian is hashing through and figuring out and dealing with and all that. But generally speaking, if a person is, is, is walking according to their convictions, is walking according to what they believe God wants for them, he says your job, your, what you owe other people is to help them carry their burdens. And this is both, I think, can be very exciting because you get a glimpse of the eternal work that we're involved in. You get a glimpse of what, the opportunity that every day we get to help people to be more and more like God and nearer, not in nature. I'm not 
claiming divinity, but to be more like Jesus and to be closer to Jesus, to find the fruit of Jesus, or we're, or we're not helping people, or even worse, we're not walking at all and we're helping people to a different destination. So it's, it's, it's very exciting in that respect, but it's very challenging because the flesh every time just, no, no. But, but Jesus says, no, this is how real life for my kingdom works. And so in chapter 15, uh, Paul's just making the point. He's saying, look, that's our calling. God's going to strengthen you through his Holy Spirit. He makes the point that there's, this, there's an end game here. And he says there in chapter 15, verse 6, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the end game. This is what God is doing, to bring everyone with one voice to glorify God. There's not a lot of I in there. But you and I were built for this. It's what we were created for. It's why we can, we can, excuse me, it's why we can try to track down every single hobby, every single relationship, every single car. It's why we can look at magazines all day long and wanderlust after stuff and never be fulfilled because we were built for eternity. Ecclesiastes tells us that he has set eternity in our hearts so that we might never find out the end from the beginning. That seems a little mystical, but the whole point is this. He has set eternity in our hearts so that from the end of the beginning, we can never be satisfied with anything on the earth. We can't be. So when we move in a step of faith towards God saying, yes, I want that life, it scares me to death. But you say it's the right life, and so I want it. And we take step forward, you know, steps towards that. And then all of a sudden there's this fulfillment and all of a sudden there's this glory to God because we realize experientially that what he's always promised us is actually true. But it's up to us to take the step forward. We are the greatest thwarters of God's will in our life. It's a miserable thought, but it's the truth because his will and his glory and his power is always available. Now where we kick off today, where we're starting in chapter 15, verse 14, he says this, and this is really cool. I love stuff where, and that's a very weird pastor thing to say so I'm not trying to like you should love it too I'm saying that I I love stuff where we get to see the the people and and in what Paul writes about here we get to see him we get to see who he is a little bit because he's going to talk about his personal ministry he's going to talk about his philosophy about ministry he's going to talk about that he can't wait to go see them and you know see you see a little bit of Paul someone who we might be tempted to idolize that when we think of him he's got a big halo and maybe a cape and levitates wherever he goes but as a matter of fact, that was not him. In his, his, the autobiographical statements that he makes, he says things like, the good that I want to do in my life, I don't do that. Instead, I find myself doing the evil I don't want to do. He's like us. <laughs> right? We see him saying things like, when he writes to the Corinthians, when, he, when he's later on, when he's talking about that first letter that he wrote that we have, that he wrote probably three, if not four letters to, to Corinth, but we have two of them. And when he's talking about that first letter, a letter of correction, a hard letter, he says, when I handed off the letter to be sent to you, I regretted it. There's such humanity in that. I regretted sending you that letter. He goes, because I knew, I knew it would grieve you. And because it was going to grieve you, it grieved me. And he goes, but then when you repented from what you were doing, I was so happy. And I didn't regret it anymore. Very human. This is who this is. So as we kind of dive into to this, we'll see a little bit more about him. And I think the heart of God in that. Verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. 
But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. We'll stop there for a second. So he's, he's finished up the, in, in the first part of chapter 15. He's finished up the fact that, uh, that God is, is unifying the Gentiles and the Jews into one body to give glory to God, meaning uh, doxa, good opinion, to point to how good God is, right? He, says, he finishes that, and then, he, and then he, he, he kind of throws them a bone, if you will. And he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. That's, again, the Greek word for brothers and sisters. That you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Sometimes, I don't want to make anybody offender for a word, but you know, you know the, the, the rich young ruler? Remember that in the Gospels where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, good master? And Jesus says, there's only one good, and that is God. You guys remember that? Have you ever met or done someone, have you done it or met someone that you say something is good and they go, only one thing is good, and that's God? Right? I have. And I've done it jokingly, too. But sometimes we're really reluctant to praise God's people because we think that you know, we're going to rob Jesus of his glory. We can be reluctant to say... He's writing to Rome. What's Rome like? Well, Rome is about a million people right now. I don't know about right now. When this in 57 AD. I have no idea what it is right now. It's about a million people. In contrast, Jerusalem is 15,000, and Nazareth, his hometown, is 450. They established the Nazareth by how many graves there were, and they've excavated and so forth. So this gives you a little hint. Jerusalem, 15,000. Rome is a million no city will come even close to it until uh, Victorian England and London. So that's how long it reigns as, the, as one of the largest cities that it's ever been. A million people. It's, it's polytheistic. We've talked about it. We don't want to get gross, but it's polytheistic. It's very normal to give your children uh, phallic necklaces. They celebrated phallic symbols. Everywhere you went was exaggeration, statues of exaggerated uh, male and female bodies. And that, that's, what, that's what they grew up in. So people are getting saved out of it. It's a melting pot. It's eerily similar to the United States of America, to be honest. But it's a melting pot. People actually immigrate to Rome at this time because it's a place where there's incredible opportunity for some. You have, uh, uh, right as you go into Rome through one of the main gates where there's a, uh, uh, I think it was Titus, erected this huge celebratory um, like archway type of thing. Uh, that for, it, it's all engraved with pictures of them crushing the Jews and uh, stealing everything from the, the temple from 70 AD. And so right in front of that is a giant memorial that a guy made himself, uh, and it's shaped like a bunch of baker's ovens. It's massive. It's like, I don't know, the size of this wall, and then there again, it's huge. He came, and he, was just a, he just started a bakery, and he got rich in Rome. So this is what Rome is like. It's, 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 imagine America with togas, because that's what it is. All, but, but, but significantly more defiled. Um, they, ex, they excavate a lot of children's graves. And a lot, if you were like a pleb, which is kind of a Roman idea of somebody who's just a, a, a worker class, uh, kids started working at about six years old. They, ex, they, they, they pulled uh, skeletons out where they show massive wear at the growth plates of children because they're carrying these huge uh, 50, 60-pound burdens at the age of like six, seven years old. Um, 
Rome, where if you don't want your kid, you throw it in the street, and, you, and people just walk by and let it die. Or if somebody wants it, they'll pick it up. So this is Rome. So he's riding to Rome, and all these people are getting saved. Right? What's your life after you got saved? Did you get saved and know everything about the Bible and then become a perfect person? Probably not. Right? You, got, you were messy. You had issues. You had difficulties, things you didn't want to give up, things that you believed that were wrong. All those things, right? And then so you just have all these people. Imagine if you just started a church with nobody who had any church experience. What would that be like? Might be a little crazy, right? People making all sorts of weird suggestions. I'm thinking we should get a big idol of Jesus and stick it in here. I'm, I don't know. I'm thinking we should do this. I, you know, I really like having temple prostitutes. Maybe we should bring those in here. No, we don't really do that anymore because this is what Jesus said about that. I mean, just all the crazy, I mean, look at the crazy ideas we have today, right? And just multiply that what it's been like in Rome. And yet Paul writes to the Romans and he says, I'm not writing to you because I'm mad or I think you somehow lack. He says, I think you're good. I think you're just, you're solid people that are trying to make your way. And I just want to write to you and rem to, to, to remind you of what Jesus did for you and how you can now walk with him and you can live a life that he's promised you. I really like that because we can get so, and I, I guess I'm like that. I, I, maybe that's my hang up where I'm just like, no, we all suck completely. And it's, it's just, that's just the way it is. And while that, that may be true by nature, our Adamic natures, the reality is that we're growing. And we may not be where we want to be in our walk, but we're hopefully moving towards it. And so Paul, he does the same thing. We're going to start 1 Corinthians in a couple weeks, right? What do you have going on in Corinth? You have a dude sleeping with his mother-in-law, like openly, like they come to church, and everybody's like, hey, that's cool, we're open here. You have people getting drunk at their potlucks and then taking, uh, partaking of communion and dying, the Lord killing them for it. You have people suing each other, you know, borrow the lawnmower and break it and uh, you get sued for it. You have people using their gifts, their, their spiritual gifts, just to bring attention to themselves. You know, just standing up in the middle of meetings and speaking in tongues with no interpreter just to, so everybody will, will appreciate them and, who, and, their, and their spirituality. Pretty dysfunctional, right? You might go to that church once or twice and be like, I think I'm going to go down the road. Only problem is there's no other church. It's just that one. And so... Paul writes to them and he says, in, in the very, he opens the letter by saying, God's going to do a great work in you. He's doing a great work in you. He's going to confirm that great work to the end. He's got great plans for you. Oh, he's gifted your church. Your church has all the gifts and it's so great. You know, God's doing such a good thing. You know, I'm not saying that he's trying to just be Mr. Uh, happy and never be real about things, but he looks, I think, very similar to how Jesus looks. And that is not to exactly how things are right now, but what they will be. Not everything that's, that we're struggling with, but what we'll eventually become. Not that we are not realists, but to have encouragement for God's people. So he writes to the Roman church, just generically. He doesn't know everybody there. And he says, I'm convinced of your goodness. I'm convinced that God's doing a great work. I, I'm excited to see you, he's going to say later on. I think it's an important thing to, to an outlook that when we're coming to church, even though we are the church, we're coming to a location where God's people are going to be, and we're going to corporately worship God, and we're going to corporately read his word together and seek his face together, that when we show up, we go, these people are full of goodness. And I know they're going to have problems because they're like me. And I know that they're broken because they're like me. But that's not what I'm here to focus on. I'm not here to nitpick. I'm not here to worry about what people are doing. I'm not here to change their minds on peripheral things. I'm just here to worship God with these people and, and love them. 
That's what I'm here to do. And that's what Paul's talking about. So he says this. He says, you're filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But verse 15, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace that God has given me. So he admits to them and he, he acknowledges this. Some of the things he said are very bold and they are. Completely yield your life to Jesus and leave no place in your life for your fleshly lust. That's a bold statement, isn't it? It's a bold statement because I think when we read something like that, when we read that if, if, if I'm strong in my convictions, that my, I'm obligated, I owe Jesus to bear the burdens of the weak around me, those are hard words. Those are words we buck against. Our country is founded on bucking against words like that. We're not going to pay your stupid tea tax. We're not going to listen to you when you say we can't advance west. We're going west. We're America. When you break down and you start reading the reasons why we went west, it was not religious persecution. It was land and money. That's why. And so, you know, it's so, it's so important that we adopt and understand that those these things are hard. Paul says, I spoke boldly to you because God gave me grace to do it. Meaning, not just grace like he felt bubbly about it, but he says he gave me the ability. Remember when we went back to chapter 12, we have gifts of grace. We have grace-given uh, talents uh, that we're able to use, whether it's organization or music or whatever it might be. Um, and he says, so God gave me the grace to talk to you about this stuff. So the question becomes, do they and do we have the grace to listen? And the answer is yes. If we turn away from these truths, it's not the boogeyman. It's not Satan made me do it. It's not my upbringing that makes me do it. It is me deciding in the face of truth, I will not yield my life to Christ. And that will have its fallout. Or it's us saying, yes, I will yield my life to you, Lord. He's going to go on and talk a little bit about that, that God's grace in his life, verse 16, was to be a minister of Jesus Christ, a servant of Christ. That's what it means. To the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's like a big religious sentence, isn't it? So what is he saying? What, what does it mean? He's saying that God gave me grace. He enabled me, gave me gifts called me, all these things, so that I could speak to you, and some of it is bold and difficult. And he says the reason he did that is because he's given me a task. He says he's given me a priestly duty. Now, a priest in the Old Covenant, is, is the idea there is someone who stands essentially to introduce humans to God. It's, it's, it's a person who stands between God and man, not stands between, like keeps them away, but to introduce them. In, in a very common way, you know, you roll up to the priest, you have your offering, uh, the priest inspects the offering, you guys have that transaction as a, as a father uh, or even as a mother, as a patriarch or a matriarch of the family, depending on what your family situation is, you slice that thing's throat, the priest catches the blood, you know, and then there's the butchering and all of that, right? So he says, I have a priestly thing that God has called me to, a, a priestly ministry, service, and he says, my priestly service that God has given me because he gave me the grace, the gifting, and the, the ability to do it is to make sure that the Gentiles offering, that doesn't mean what the Gentiles bring, it means to bring the Gentiles as an offering. Who are the Gentiles? Us. Everybody who's not a Jew. 
So Paul says, my mission is to make sure that I do everything I can that God has called me to, to make sure that Gentiles meet God in a way that's sanctified, which means set aside, right? That's special. It's important. The Gentiles meet God. He says, that's why I'm doing this, and that's why I wrote boldly to you. In other words, he, he's the same guy that said to the Corinthians, I'm not here to lord over your faith. And we might think if any church needed its faith lorded over, it's got to be Corinth. It was pandemonium there. But he says, no, I'm not here to lord over your faith. I'm here to be a helper of your joy. It is the same thing, the same dynamic that's happening here. He's saying, look, God gave me grace to say bold things to you, but it's not to assault you. It's to make sure that you can be brought before God sanctified, clean, not dealing with junk in our lives because we brought it on ourselves." He says, that's why I'm speaking so boldly to you, so that you can, can know and, and interact with God at a, at a very wonderful place in your heart, in a sense. He's going to go on. Verse 17, In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through, uh, through me to bring uh, the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, and by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem all the way around to Lycrium, I have come, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has uh, already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never told, uh, excuse me, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. So Paul goes on. Now he's talking about his own personal ministry. And he makes some very good points here. He says, in Christ Jesus, I have a reason to be proud of my work. Okay, so is this Paul saying, I'm actually really great. And I'm, and I'm proud of who I am, you know, like Nacho Libre or something. You know, just, is that what he's saying? No, he's saying the, the, word, the word proud, it, it can be translated uh, confidence. Um, it can be translated to, to boast about something, like to speak well of something. So what Paul is saying here, he's making a, a little bit, there's a contrast to be had. He's saying, because God called me to this great ministry, and because by his grace I've walked in it, Paul made a choice. He said, yes, I will do what you want me to do. Right? That's what he did. And then from that choice, God enabled him to do what he needed to do. When it was time to get a beating, Paul took a beating. When it was time to be unhindered, uh, he was unhindered. When it was time for him to shipwreck, he was shipwrecked. When it was time for him to go back to mainland, he went to mainland. You know, it's, it's Paul's life was lived in a faith that said God can do what he wants. And what he's saying is, I boast about that. Not that he was all great and did it. He's boasting in what God did and the great work that God has for him. And it's the same for us. So he's not saying, I'm such a great guy. He's saying, I'm so proud of what I've gotten to be involved in. It's so great. You know, there is a certain amount of satisfaction, I think, for any individual when we actually obey God. Have you noticed that? That even when it's, no matter how hard it is leading up to that point of obedience, no matter how badly we get crushed by our own will and guilt and shame, in the moment where we finally say yes to God, isn't it incredible how you lay down at night when you're in and walking in the will of God, not perfect, but walking in the will of God, and there's peace. 
Peace like you've never experienced. Peace because you realize everything's okay. There's no guilt. There's no shame that we've brought upon ourselves. There's no, I can't pray right now because I know what I've done. There's no separation. There's no death. And so Paul's saying, I'm so proud of what God has done and that I got to be a part of it. It's, it's, it's such a blessing to me to be part of this. And it's, it's really part of the key of what he, this whole thing that he's saying, this, this conclusion that he's making to his letter. To say that, man, God's got this purpose, and he's called me and every one of us. And when we walk in that, even in the littlest thing, when I'm not rude to someone, when, there's some, when I want to say something and, and, I, and I don't, when I want to uh, gripe about something, but instead I don't. In those things, he says, man, that's how we uh, are overcoming and how we live this blessed life. Um, he goes on there and he, and he says, I think something that's very profound and very important for us. He says there in verse 20, and he says, and thus, oh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 19, uh, 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. I think the church can really learn a lesson here. The church universally. The word uh, venture, it could be translated dare. It could be translated uh, presume. Um, it could be translated travel. And what Paul is saying, I don't dare talk about other people's ministries. Think about that for a second. If anyone had the right to evaluate ministries, any, any pure human, wouldn't it be Paul? When you think Paul would be the one that should have a YouTube channel where he trashes every other ministry that he doesn't agree with? Don't you think Paul should be the one who, who, who gets to come up and say, these people are idiots because they believe this? But yet his commentary says, I don't dare talk about other people's ministries. He goes, I don't go there, literally. I don't venture there. I don't travel there. I have no part with this. We love that. Anybody here ever watch the Babylon Bee? It's hilarious. It's hilarious because it mocks God's people that we disagree with. Isn't that, let's be honest. Isn't that why it's funny? Yeah. That's why we like it, because it mocks other people. And I'm not saying that, that, that we, there isn't truth to some of it, because that's what makes it funny. But the reality is they're venturing to a place, and many other ministries are, are venturing to a place to mock God's people. That's scary to me. I understand satire. I understand how it can communicate information. I understand all of that. But the question is, when we stand before Jesus, is he going to say, I'm so glad that you guys had this daily article where you marked my people. I thought they were losers too. I couldn't believe it. I was like, really? Pom-poms? Thank you for mocking them for me. I appreciate it. I know their music was garbage. Thank you so much for letting me know and the world know that they're garbage. The smoke machine was garbage. Thank you so much for using satire and sarcasm because everybody responds to satire and sarcasm like I'm using right now to feel better about themselves, right? No, we, we scoff at it. When someone's satirical to us or sacri- you know, uh, they use um, sarcasm to us, what do we do? Boop, right? Forget you then. The Babylon Bee is going to win no one. Do you know why? Because you don't win people with mockery. Why do we love it so much? Why do we always want to venture to other people's ministries? Why, why do we always want to evaluate um, 
I don't know, just throw some big names out there. Why? Can you imagine if, like, what's the Saddleback dude? Uh, Rick, Warren. Rick Warren. Can you imagine if Rick Warren started tweeting about you? Can you imagine that? If he tweeted your church name, and then he tweeted how crappy you and your church are? Would you appreciate it? When 500,000 followers all now repost that, show up here, tell us what they think of us because someone said something about it? Would you feel that was valid? Would you feel well represented? Would you think, wow, I'm really one to this ministry. I really want to be a part of this. No, we wouldn't. We would rage. We would go, how dare you? How could you? You shouldn't do that. But because I'm, you know, P. Ant James, I have the right to just mock whoever I want online. And when Paul, like the leader of the known ministry world, is like, dude, I do not go there. I feel like this is a good place for us to learn. In fact, as we read 12, 13, 14, and 15, you know what the vibe you get is? The vibe that I get anyway, and, and we could, if I'm wrong, we could talk about this. I don't think I am. Is that Christianity is actually significantly more local. Right? In other words, the only thing we have to deal with, and I don't mean deal in a negative way, I just mean interact with, is the person next to me. It doesn't matter what Rick Warren's doing down in California. He doesn't call us for advice. Right? It doesn't matter what, uh, you know, I don't know. Name any big person out there. Christian person. What was the one we watched yesterday, Tam? The, the Hillsong thing? There was some conspiracy? You know, it's this, what's the dude's name? Lentz. Carl Lentz. It doesn't matter what Carl Lentz is doing. Carl Lentz is Carl Lentz. Carl Lentz is going to answer to Jesus. It's not, up to, it's not up, to, up to us to tweet about how he wears his shorts. He can do what he wants. Now, if someone comes to us and says, hey, I'm thinking about modeling Carl Lentz. What do you think about that at the beach? I'm like, oh, that's probably a bad plan. You know, people don't want to see that. You're going to misrepresent Jesus. I don't, I don't suggest that. But see, our responsibility is local. Our responsibility is each other. The world and Washington and Olympia and whatever, they're going to do what they want to do. But we have the person in front of us. So we don't, we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to venture to other ministries. It doesn't matter what other churches are doing. It doesn't matter. It matters what, what has God called us to do and are we walking in that? And if we're not, let's be honest. If we love to mock God's people, if it, if it makes us laugh at what other God's people do that, that we don't agree with, let's just be honest about that. I like to laugh at God's people and then repent and just say, you know what, Lord? You don't laugh at them. You love them. You want great things for them. Let's not venture to smack talk people. Let's just love the people in front of us and then do what God has called us to do. What is your ministry? What has called, God called you to do that? It's you to do. You should go do that. And you should do that heartily. And, you should, and I should too. And when something comes into my sphere of influence or my sphere that I could help somebody, then I can say, no, you know what? I, I don't think it's good to tell people if they tie the $1,000, they'll get 2000 back from God. I think that's a bad plan. That's not what the word says. So I don't think you should say that. Well, so-and-so says it. Well, okay, I disagree with so-and-so. And, and this is why, because what the Bible says. I don't have to say, well, so-and-so is an idiot. And so-and-so is a false teacher. And so-and-so doesn't know anything. And so-and-so is going to hell. And so-and-so, I don't know any of that. All I know is that if you tie the thousand to get two thousand, there's something wrong in your heart. 
and you're not walking in biblical truth. And we can just address that without Twitter, right? And without Facebook. We can just talk face to face. I love this verse because Paul just goes, man, I don't even venture to do that because it's not my business. He says, instead, I just think about what God's called me to do. Verse 20, he says, and thus I make it my ambition, right? To preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as is written, those who have never been told will, uh, of him will see, and those who have never uh, heard will understand. So Paul, this is not, I want to make real quick. Paul is not saying that you should never go somewhere where the gospel is already preached. Does it say that in the text? No. What does it say? He says, my ambition. He doesn't say ours. He doesn't say yours. He says mine. His ambition, his ministry, which was singular, I think we can agree with that, meaning it was kind of a special time in a special place. He says, I started in Jerusalem. It literally, literally translates to in a circle. So he says, I started in Jerusalem, and he says, I went in a circle all the way out to these other places. The Bible doesn't actually record him going to uh, Ilricum, or Ilricum, however you want to pronounce it. It doesn't record him ever going there. So he went there, evidently, but we just don't have a, that letter. So what his point is, he says, I don't want to build on another person's foundation. And I think that, that we, there's application in that for us, too. Paul says, hey, I, when somebody else is doing a work, I don't want to show up and manipulate that work. And I, I remember years and years and years ago going to... Uh, I must have been probably 13, yeah, 13, 12, 13 years ago. Uh, uh, me and another brother, we went down to uh, Riverside to go to this Preach the Word conference thing. And uh, uh, I remember listening to Chuck Swindoll, and uh, really stood out because I remember it to this day. And he, he did a teaching, it was called Boars in the Garden. And it was basically about how, um, and he wasn't being negative or accusatory, he was just talking about basically dealing with things as a pastor. He was talking about how if you are pastoring a church or you go start a church or if you're like a, a ministry leader in the church and you, you, you founded a ministry, that there will always be people that will come along and they'll say, oh, that's cool, but you should do this. I'm not saying you never take suggestions. We're not saying that. We take suggestions all the time. I, I think we do. Some we turn down, but some we take. So we're not saying no suggestions, but, but we're not talking about people that give suggestions. We're talking about people that come in and they say, oh, that, you know, that, that's good, that's good. Uh, but, ah, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I see you using the ESV. Here's the thing. You know, in 1 Corinthians, it says, when the perfect has come, then the old has passed away. And that's an, actually a reference, a prophetic reference to the King James Bible. And you're like, that would be cool, except the King James Bible is not perfect. I have never seen a unicorn. Have you? But that's in the 1611 version of the King James. It, was, it meant something different. But it's, it's, not, it's not a perfect translation. And so people will come in and say, oh, we like what you're doing, we like what you're doing. But uh, you really need a different style of worship. We, really just, we need just hymns. Or we need to just get rid of hymns completely. Or, you know, whatever it might be. And so you, you can know that, that people will always come in and they'll try to build on your foundation. Or worse, they'll come in and they'll say, oh, this is a great church. And they'll talk to other people in the body. And they'll say, yeah, 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 this is a great church. But check it out. I've been studying the 15 layers of Hebrew in the Torah. And if you learn the layers of Hebrew, you see the secret messages from God. And then you come to my Bible study at my house. 
because your church doesn't have this inside information. But if you come to my Bible study, you'll really understand the Torah, and that'll just... <laughs> right? Because Jesus dying on the cross is kind of weak. I need more information about Hebrew. Well, that's what people do. Because you start a foundation, and God's doing something, and it's way easier just to come and try to steal away from that than it is to invest or to start your own thing. I would never do this. Bob Cole, one time at a conference, somebody asked a question, and he goes, you know what? We oftentimes have people that will come along and say, hey, you should change this or you should do this. No, no, they have a mega church with like an outlandish budget, which I'm not insulting. I mean, they used it for God's things. But uh, Bob goes, you know what I do? He goes, I just tell them, here's what I'll do. We'll pay you a wage for a year, and we'll announce that you're starting the church. And anybody who wants to can go with you. And he goes, we've had zero people take me up on that. <laughs> Maybe a little outlandish, but I was kind of chuckled. Made me chuckle. So he said, Paul says, I don't want to build on other people's foundations. I don't want to take from what they're doing. I don't want to establish my own thing on top of what they're doing. He said, God's given me a ministry, and that's what I'm doing. And that's what we want to do, right? We're not here to rob people from their churches. We're not here to do any of that. We're just here to preach the word, to worship God, and to love one another. Right? That's what we're here to do. It doesn't get any more, there's, there's no more fancy than that. There's something inside of me, just as a side note, there's something I think, in, maybe in each one of us, I, I definitely, I see it sometimes in me that you think like, well, maybe, maybe we need something more than that to, to really get people through the doors. There's always this temptation that somehow we need something more than that. Maybe if I lost weight and wore skinny jeans, then everybody would get, you know. <laughs> then I could have a real church or something. But it's not true. God's doing a great work here. We get to be part of it. And, 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 and we're blessed because God is so good to us. Everything that ever good that's ever happened here has been just because God is good. Verse 22. He says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. So what's the reason? Because he's been preaching the gospel in new places. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Once uh, I have enjoyed your company for a while. This is profound. This is a great glimpse. He says, look... Because I've been so busy just traveling around and preaching the gospel, I haven't gotten to come to you. But now that there's nowhere else in this area for me to preach the gospel, I have some time. So I'm going to stop by on my way to Spain and visit you. That's what he says. And so, but he gives them this little, he says, he, says, I'm, he tells them, I'm excited. He says, I, he says, I'll get to enjoy the end of verse 24. Once I have enjoyed your company. He says, I'm not going to, I'm going there. And he says, I'm going there to enjoy your company. This is such a great attitude about coming to visit people, a church, your church, whatever. To, to look at it and say, I'm just looking forward to being able to have company. These people don't have to give me anything. They don't have to treat me some certain way. I'm just excited to be able to fellowship with these people. People that just are, are just like him, Paul. Just like me. People that would to do good but do evil. People that want to serve Jesus. People that are, are laying down their lives you know, people that are wrestling with fear like Paul did. He got so scared in the ministry that Jesus has to come to him and say, don't be scared. 
Have you ever been so scared that Jesus personally appeared to you and said, don't be scared? Evidently, you haven't been as scared as Paul. I mean, what does it take for Jesus to personally appear to you and say, Paul, I have a bunch of people in the city. No one's going to beat you here. Paul says, okay, all right. What a comfort. He says, I'm really excited to, to spend time with you guys. Uh, verse 25, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia I have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. This is interesting. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what it has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So he says, he makes this little note. He says, look, these two Gentile churches, Gentile region-based churches, they've decided to take a collection amongst themselves, and they're giving me money, and there's other people that are with him, to carry to the people that are poor in Jerusalem. Since there have been, been all sorts of uh, economic difficulties since the church started in Jerusalem, Paul says these Gentile churches have decided to, to take money and bring that money to Jerusalem. And then he makes this point. He says, and they should. Which that might be like, we're like, what? What is this should? It's my money. Should is what I want to do with it. But Paul says, no, it was good that they helped the Jerusalem church. And he makes this point. He said, because the Gentile churches have prospered with the gospel because they got to hear the gospel through the Jews, they should be paying the Jews in, in, I don't want to say back, but they should be helping them. In other words, he just makes the point that because the Jews have blessed them spiritually, that they, in a sense, owed it to, to help them with material things. So it's an interesting idea there. Um, verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on, behalf, on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to all the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. And may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And uh, we'll pick up 16 next week. But the point that he's making here is simply this. He's very excited. He's excited to come to them, and he says he appeals to them to pray for them, and he makes the point that when he gets to Judea, that he's concerned about the unbelievers, right? Because remember, it is a very, we're out of time here, I don't want to go too far, but remember, for whatever reason, Peter, James, all the other apostles, they're allowed, to, they just live like peacefully in Jerusalem. But every single time Paul shows up, there's like a riot, and they try to kill him. And so he says, he says, hey, will you please pray for me? I need your prayer because I'm going back there. <laughs> I'm bringing all this money and, and please pray that, number one, the Jews will accept it. He was concerned, maybe because it was Gentile money. Remember, you still have all this weirdness in the church. It's only 57 AD. It's only been like seven, yeah, about seven years since the Jews actually conceded to the fact that Gentiles could get saved, Right? The Jerusalem Council happens about 15 years after Pentecost when the church is born. So the, 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 like the stamp of approval of the Jerusalem Council is only seven years old. So Paul's saying, will you pray that they'll actually even just take the money and not just go get this Gentile pig's will away from us? 
And then he says, will you pray for me too so I don't get killed when I go to Judea because they hate me there because I don't preach the law of Moses? So it's a very interesting dynamic. And he just says, hey, will you pray for me? And then he just finishes this portion because the next portion, chapter 16, is going to be all basically greetings. There's a little bit other uh, material besides greetings, but it's mostly greetings. So he finishes kind of the letter portion here by saying, man, I want to come with you uh, with joy, so please pray for me. And then he says, I want to be refreshed by your company. There's probably a lot to be said about that. Just in this case, by application, is our company refreshing? Is your company refreshing? Is my company refreshing? What do I mean by that? When people come hang out with you, whether it's in the foyer or sit next to you at church or at your house or at our lunches, are you refreshing? Are you a pain in the... Honestly, I'm not saying we can never talk about our problems, but when you walk into church, is it just all drama? Is it just all like, oh, you would not believe the people I was behind I'm trying to get here? And you're like, it's Washington. I don't know what else you expected. <laughs> right? Our, is our company refreshing? Because if we have the fragrance of Christ, if we're walking with Christ, if we're allowing him to change us and, and have his way in our lives, and we're repenting, we're looking upon one another with love and with kindness, we're seeking help when we need it. That's really important as humans, to find the help when we need it. I'm not saying be a stalwart super person and never need. No, get the help. Find the healing and have refreshing company. We get to decide if our company is refreshing. No one else gets to decide that but us. People might turn it down. They may not want it. But we can decide if we're going to be refreshing or not. Which is more refreshing if you walk into somebody's home. when they, they start, If they were to say, like, hey, well, you just sit down right there, and um, I've prepared this Bible study, and you're going to like it. You're like, that's not refreshing. Not even a little bit. Or is it more refreshing? Like, yeah, come on in. Sit down. You want some water? Yeah, what's up? Oh, cool. Oh, oh right on. Yeah. I mean, what is more refreshing? And Paul says, I'm really excited because I'm going to come to you and you'll be refreshed by my company and I can be refreshed by your company. And so I think that's what we want to be. You know, hopefully as a church and as individuals, people that lay down our lives, people that take steps of faith to say, Jesus, what you say is actually true. And the more that I lay down my life, the more life I'll experience. I don't have to walk in any fear of the government. I don't have to walk in fear of uh, other churches. I don't have to measure my government. I don't have to measure other churches. I can just act and think locally. And God, he's, he's omnipotent. He's sovereign. He's all power, what he, powerful. What he allows is what will happen. And I can just focus on what's in front of me. I don't have to worry about the Great Reset from Glenn Beck. I don't have to worry about uh, you know, all the different things, the big bads that are out there. I don't have to worry about the Boogeyman Ministries. I don't have to worry about Rick Warren and his purpose-driven life. I don't have to worry about any of that. I get to just worship God, be with my local people, and go where God calls me to go. And he says, if I do that, it'll be the most fulfilling and the most useful life I could ever live with eternal ramifications. So we should do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and mercy. Lord, thank you that you have great things for us. And Lord, we want to be a church. We do want to be a city on a hill. We want to be a light shining in darkness. We want our company to be refreshing for people. Lord, we don't forgive us. Forgive me of making commentary sometimes on other ministries, venturing uh, where uh, I ought not to in that. Lord, forgive us of thinking that it's, it's fun 
to make fun of your people because they're different from us or they see things different from us. Lord, forgive us for having our own personal agenda that's outside of your kingdom. And Lord, we just want to afresh lay our lives at your altar and say that we're yours. And Lord, we don't want to jump off the altar. We don't want to run away. Uh, we want, we're asking you to work in our hearts and our lives and to do good, um, more good than you already have. Lord, we pray that you would use our church for great things. And Lord, we do thank you too for our moms. We pray the moms would be blessed today. We pray that they would be refreshed and um, hopefully a day off cooking or whatever. And Lord, that you would be exalted. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here you go. Bless you guys.